You've scanned the headlines, read the articles, and liked the posts. Now listen to the experts themselves in the Future of Work podcast, presented by allwork.space. Are you ready? We're excited today to <clears throat> welcome Melissa Marsh from Plastark uh, to the Future of Work um, podcast. Um, Melissa is an expert in workplace strategy, and she's been a leader in change management services, uh, uh, working with design, architecture, master planning projects all over the world. Uh, in Europe and the U.S., uh, she's been in the forefront of delivering alternative workplace solutions and has led virtual teams throughout her entire career. Uh, she's contributed to Cornet, WorkTech, spearheaded international learning and technology initiatives, lectured at UVA, Cornell, MIT, Sloan School of Management. Uh, Melissa, welcome and thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So before we jump in, can you tell us a little bit about Plastar? Um, and I'm interested from all of the conversations we've had uh, over the, the last couple of years as we've known each other, um, do you really think the perfect workspace exists or can exist? Great, thank you. Um, so Plastark is a social research and people analytics organization for architectural environments. I can unpack that for you a little bit. Um, what it really means is that we bring the kind of people-based research um, and quantitative viewpoint on how people think and feel about things, how they experience things that you might see more popularly in product design or maybe think of as something that's part of urban design thinking. Um, it hasn't historically been part of architecture and the interior design scale um, to have real data, information, analytics about what that employee experience is within the physical environment. So our work is to bring that people experience together with the physical experience. Um, I sometimes jokingly say we help uh, buildings and people get along better together. Um, and we, we really came to that um, through a variety of perspectives from sustainable design um, to a real passion for uh, the fact that architecture is different from, say, art by virtue of the fact uh, that it is occupiable. And so I sometimes think of architecture as the art of occupancy. How can really, we really focus on what it's like to be in an environment? And then you asked, is there a perfect space? Um, and I would say this is maybe like thinking, is there a perfect partner, um, right? There's, uh, there's a lot of uh, different, uh, a lot of difference and a lot of nuance, um, but I think that really the perfect space comes from having an environment uh, that one has an opportunity to connect with. Uh, I wouldn't quite say control because that wouldn't work well with the partner uh, analogy, but I certainly think that there may not be a perfect space for everyone collectively, um, but that there is certainly a perfect space for each of us. No, I think I think that it's good to drill down to that to our unique needs and our unique characteristics and. Um, you've, you've known me a bit, you know, I'm sort of a, a, a straight ahead businessman. Uh, so I'm going to ask a, a question uh, a little bit about how do you calculate the return on investment in the perfect workplace? What, what are the metrics that people use to say this is A is better than B, not just because it feels better, but what are the productivity metrics that come to play so that a business decision can be made um, uh, based on those those indicators. 
Yeah, so I think the, the first factor of that um, calculation uh, is really around um, the fact that most organizations spend about 10x on their people uh, that they might uh, spend on either their space or their technology. Um, and if we can leverage uh, people, uh, we, if we can leverage the space um, to improve the people experience, then that's really going to mean that it's a much better experience. Um, and uh, some of the ways that we might measure that um, are an engagement score, which is asking um, employees how engaged they are, um, how committed they are to their organization. Um, it might be uh, an attachment score, um, asking, you know, really what is that connectivity? What are the factors of that connectivity? Um, one of the things that we see uh, drives engagement uh, is, do I have the sense that my employer cares for me? Um, and by having a wonderful work environment, that can be uh, a visual and experiential uh, expression of care. Um, we also see uh, an example maybe coming from marketing and business uh, net promoter score. Would you uh, recommend this workplace or would you recommend this uh, employer uh, to another person in your pos position or with it to another person uh, with your talents, et cetera? So I really think of workplace as um, maybe two pieces, one as a means of expression um, and accommodating people that they uh, have that feeling of stickiness with their organization. They want to be part of that organization. Um, so it's both the expressive component, but it's also the functional component. Does the space allow people to do their best work? Um, and by and large, when we're talking about knowledge workers, people bring that desire to do their best work to, uh, to work every day. Um, and so it's really about the organization making space to make that happen. Um, and so that's why we think of being able to measure space based on its impact on a person. Uh, it's really in many ways you could say that we as people are the instrument by which we measure the efficacy of the space. Well, you know, it, it, it's interesting. Um, we've been saying for the last several years, many years now, about five or six years, that there's no such thing as an occupier of space, that we are all travelers. And I've traveled all my life, and I've, I've mm -hmm. always worked, I traveled when I worked uh, uh, overall. And I know what you're saying, what you're suggesting, um, I know I worked a lot better when I travel, when I'm accommodated in places where I'm very, very comfortable. Right. Uh, and, and, and the comfort can be a quality level, it can be a service level, it can be an environmental level, all those things. And when you find that magic spot, that's where you always go back. Uh, right. So I, I really get that. Um, but as we look at the worker, as a traveler instead of an occupier, how does a company blend all of the places that a person works into that single uh, environment uh, to perpetuate the same quality structure? Because again, you, you're you're at your residence today, so am I. We've kind of been locked into to to a different officing environment uh, uh, overall. Um, Generally, you know, yesterday I was in my office, uh, I was in a meeting rooms, so I was in my office, today I'm at my residence, uh, uh, Monday I'll be possibly traveling to another office uh, uh, in another state, 
um, how do we, how do we get all these things to blend together for all of us? Because we really are travelers now. We're not sedentary occupiers. Yeah, so I think that's a, a great question, Frank. I'd, I'd start with the fact that Plastark has always been advocates for enabling people to wear to work where, when, and how they want. Um, you know that when people have freedom and discretion and control over that experience, um, they're able to put themselves in settings that are more productive for them. Um, you might imagine, for example, uh, that um, you know people. One person may feel productive in. Uh, an energetic and bustling cafe style environment. Another person uh, may feel much more comfortable in an environment uh, like a uh, like a library. Um, you know that that kind of person that can hear a, a pin drop um, or or has a, a higher level of sensitivity. So I think it's important to recognize that that people ha have different sensory experiences. Uh, and what might be comfortable for one might not be comfortable for, for another. Um, and so in that, it's really valuable for us spatially to offer a variety of different settings uh, or a variety of different experiences uh, within, within a space. I think that's, that's first and foremost um, on, on accomplishing this, uh, this comfort for many. Um, the next uh, level of diversity, like you say, you know, you're kind of inspired uh, by travel and having those different um, spaces that you can explore uh, and find uh, unto your own. Um, and I think that that's another uh, aspect of having that, that physical environment um, that maybe is changeful over time um, or dynamic in different ways so that it appeals uh, to different individuals. Um, and then I think finally, um, it's about uh, a greater intensity of experience. You're mentioning that that workers may in the future uh, be sort of passers-by in their physical environment. Mm -hmm. And in order um, to have kind of the social intensity or the connection to our organizations that we might previously have had by spending five days a week in an office, um, that experience needs to be uh, maybe twice or three times as intense uh, in order to capture uh, that stickiness we talked about um, or, or to have a, a, a similar amount uh, of that uh, brand intensity or social interaction intensity. So um, I think part of that means denser environments, um, environments where we're more likely um, to run into our colleagues or neighbors uh, or have more access to information through technology, et cetera. So I would say that we're looking at uh, environments that maybe feel more intense, um, not that that would, uh, not that that would mean uh, not uh, not being a reflective environment or a relaxing environment, um, but but less gray and less vanilla and more intentionality of space. So, so you, I, I would replace intense with energized. Okay. Uh, yeah. uh, and, and, and I get it. I, I, I agree with you completely. Uh, uh, we need that variety. And it's, it's kind of an interesting or a good segue over to work-life uh, balance. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that uh, leads over to things such as wellness uh, overall. As we change the way we work, which is a permanent thing, everybody says, oh, we're going back to the new normal. Mm -hmm. If you're going back, it's not new. And if it's normal, it's not new. So uh, basically, we're just creating, we're evolving what normal is. 
uh, and I think we all uh, have stepped forward in that regard. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of it is work-life balance. Um, and because a big percentage of people's times will be spent working from environments they create them themselves, not that's created by their employer. Right. Um, how do you manage that aspect of remote work and how does a, an employer help to create work-life balance on the, in the home office um, that ties directly back to the, the central office or a branch office, you know, work, work from home, work near home, work at the, at the corporate headquarters, the combination of those three things. We know how to do it at the corporate headquarters. We know it has, has to happen there. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, well, we think we know. Uh, uh, and and we, we know that people don't always want to work out of their house or maybe their home isn't suitable for that or their, their lifestyle isn't suitable for that. So work near home, and that may be a corporate environment. It could be a co-working or a business center environment, or as you mentioned, a library. It could be any number of third places. Mm -hmm. um, but an awful lot of us will continue to work um, a greater percentage of our time from our homes. And how do you blend those together? Yeah, so I think the first responsibility of an organization um, is probably at that ergonomic scale um, to make sure that an individual has the information they need in order to set up a desirable environment um, for the work from home condition. Um, and uh, that ergonomics is not just a chair, right? It's, uh, it's lighting, it's um, the physical environment, it may be greenery or visibility of greenery. Um, and um, I think it's actually really desirable that people have had uh, this COVID moment as an opportunity to set up their uh, work settings and see how they like to be working. Um, and then I'm really hoping that uh, people bring that information uh, back into their office environments. Um, and I'm uh, expecting that they will want uh, more control over those environments than we've uh, seen before. Um, and uh, I think that that's an important aspect uh, of that combination. Um, and then you also uh, mentioned third spaces or third settings. Um, and I think that that's a matter of maybe unlearning some of the things that uh, we've been taught by occupying corporate America for so long. Um, you know, probably back when many of us were college or university students or early in our career, we may have sought out places that weren't offices or homes that we enjoyed uh, working. And so you kind of build up a model for what you like or what, what you like when you have certain tasks. Um, and then you can go and find those spaces um, either within your community um, or maybe we'll uh, start seeing some more of those findable or unique spaces within the office environments. I think that as, as we as we progress forward, um, we've been pushed into our uh, uh, home office uh, and other officing environments a lot uh, recently. We were already <laughs> on the verge of much of this, as you know, as I know you've been preaching for a while. But um, uh, we've been uh, pushed into our home office environment and to change the environment we work as a result of this pandemic, and, and mostly by government. Uh, government saying, hey, you got to do this, you got to do that. And they, mm -hmm. there's been a lot of responsibility taken by government there. As government backs away from this, 
and as a private industry, uh, the, the private employers start making their own rules and say, well, is it you can work from home or you must work from home or you can work in this third environment or you must work in all of these changes are going to occur in policy, we'll call it human mm -hmm. resource policy mm -hmm. and naturally design and space use will be impacted by it. Here's a question. What responsibility for the home office should the employer take? And should that responsibility include a stipend for offsetting costs? I know my electricity bill has doubled since I started working from home. Now my commuting cost of fuel to get back and forth the office has been cut in half. Uh, so there's some 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 offsets already going on there. The way I, if I calculate my my home costs, but should corporations take responsibility to pay or to build out or to fixturize or deal with those aspects of a home office? Or if a home office isn't suitable, what responsibility does a a company have to provide a stipend? I guess I'll say so that a third office, a third place, a work near home instead of from home environment can be created? What, what are the responsibilities? And if you are forced to work from home, what are some of the liabilities? Yeah, so I think that that's, uh, again, an interesting question. And particularly, it's something that organizations are struggling with uh, at this moment in time. Uh, I think one of the biggest questions is uh, around uh, how are we in tending to bring people back. Uh, what is What are the expectations when people return? Are we going to mandate it or are we going to make it uh, employer organizational choice? Um, and I'm mostly seeing organizations uh, seeking some sort of future hybrid, uh, either which is driven by uh, employees having choice uh, or some combination of uh, corporate and management having uh, choice. Maybe it might be something that is designed or determined on a team level or a team basis. Um, so that, that kind of first question of sort of who comes back when, how, and why uh, is what many organizations uh, are thinking about probably harder now than they ever imagined before. Um, the other set of your questions is really uh, what should be compensated or what uh, what should be uh, paid? Um, and I, I'm going to say less of a should and more of a kind of what we've seen. Uh, it was interesting when we uh, maybe were working in the early 2000s, uh, we were seeing organizations that were using that stipend as an incentive. Uh, a reason to return or a reason to take the package uh, of having a home office uh, might include having that stipend. Um, there is a little bit of a complexity on that stipend. Is it taxable? Is it something that the uh, employer plans to uh, maintain ownership of? That can be complicated to have employer materials in an employee home. Um, I think an, another level of complexity um, is maybe what is the sustainability impact of this? If I, as an employer, have thousands of desks in the office, I maybe am thinking, well, I could just send them uh, off to the employee's uh, site or location, only they're probably not going to fit, and who would want it uh, in their environment? So I think it's going to take till we get to the next generation of furniture purchases and the next generation of technology purchases uh, for organizations really to be um, thinking through this differently. 
Um, as just a kind of uh, benchmark or point of reference, um, you might estimate that at least in urban environments, uh, an in-office accommodation cost for an employee could be roughly 12K uh, a year or $1,000 a month per person. Um, that's kind of comparable in an urban environment. You might see half that much, $500 uh, a month to the cost of a co-working membership. Uh, we are seeing organizations uh, who are sponsoring that co-working uh, membership as a way to have the spatial solution uh, solved um, on, on their behalf. Um, and then I think the last piece is maybe to reference when we began sort of a BYOD moment in technology, right? Um, and so maybe if you wanted a clunky 20 pound Dell laptop that was three or four years old, uh, your employer might pay for that. But if you wanted a new Mac Air, uh, then you are gonna have to buy that yourself, um, et cetera. So um, I really think that uh, it's gonna come down to a little bit of choice and discretion, uh, maybe where if an employee wants a particular um, product, that that's something that they maybe have to uh, top up a stipend of. Um, but we're gonna need uh, employers to start being in a real estate position where they're actually saving money um, in order to have the resources to accommodate a stipend. So like I said, I think it's going to be a next generation of purchases uh, at the corporate level till we really start seeing some different allocation uh, of what's getting bought and by whom. No, I, I, would, I would agree um, that it's a evolutionary, not revolutionary process uh, right now. But from the large corporations that we speak with, and, and I'm sure you, you hear the same or something somewhat similar, um, all of them are thinking of reducing the amount of permanent space they have right. uh, and, yeah. and reorganizing that space. And so if we, and the number that I hear most consistently for an average company that's growing at about 10% a year, that at their next lease renewal cycle, they'll be reducing their space by about 25%. Um, yeah. uh, be, and, and as they do that, they not only reduce their cost of operating that space, uh, uh, but they also materially uh, impact the debt side of their balance sheet. Uh, you know, it's, woohoo, we got rid of all that leasehold mm -hmm. debt. Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, gives them a lot of extra capital with which to grow the business, uh, improve their shareholder value, and also support initiatives such as this. So it's a matter of, how quickly is that going to occur? Well, it occurs every day as leases renew. So right. we're seeing this process go on right now all over. It's not a, this is all going to happen in three years. It's going to happen every day, one-tenth of one percent of right. something. Right. And to, to, to kind of move a little bit geographically, um, do you see companies reestablishing their core business model for employment in an urban or a suburban or how do you see the the migration from the central business district that requires the worker to commute to that location let's mm -hmm. that's a perfect example yeah you don't mind being in your nice office on fifth avenue um and you don't mind working from your home but you'll be darned if you want to get on that stinky train again right. um, the time the hassle the stress the environment uh, that you're in uh, just you know we're done with that so how do you see the relocation of workplace fitting into 
the creation of these environments that you're talking about, or do you actually think that that will occur at all? Yeah, so um, to, to comment on your first item, uh, we were already before COVID seeing that many organizations were reducing uh, square footage between moves. Um, they were uh, assume they were kind of calculating that that real estate uh, footprint reduction was going to pay for the move. It was going to pay for some of the investment in the locate in the relocation. That was already happening at a pretty steady clip for most organizations as a result of uh, either moving from primarily office-based configuration to more of an open office configuration or starting to um, develop uh, activity-based working or flexible work models, uh, or even already knowing that a portion of their employee base uh, was working from home or other locations. So um, I might even go as far as considering that we could see double uh, what you're anticipating as a post-COVID uh, difference between uh, kind of current lease uh, obligation and future lease obligation on a per organization or per location basis. You know, I, I think a lot of that will depend on the growth profile of the organization. Yes. I, I, would, I would agree with you. And I also agree that starting in about uh, 2016, we started seeing uh, pressure on the human resources side uh, where uh, human resources say, I can't hire anybody if I don't have a good flexible workplace plan. Right. Uh, and and they, they, they spent two or three years trying to make perfect the enemy of good. Uh, <laughs> amazing plans, none of which really mattered, <laughs> mattered as soon as the, the COVID door uh, opened and everybody got kicked right across that threshold. Right. Uh, all of a sudden, good was good enough. And then everybody said, hey, this works. Let's, let's evolve based on what we've learned here. Uh, so it's actually, I think, uh, as we look forward, very exciting times. So to answer your question more on location, um, we've always been advocates for sort of secondary and particularly tertiary cities, uh, the kind of cities that maybe uh, were very popular 100 or 150 years ago. Um, they might have beautiful architecture. They might have some uh, urban infrastructure, including public transportation, not just a, a busing system, but maybe uh, a rail system, maybe something that needs to be improved and brought back to life. Um, and, you know, we've talked uh, for a long time about how uh, millennials were having a different cadence uh, of when they uh, began having children and became uh, in, in a larger family that might need uh, more space. Um, I think the number was something like um, uh, boomers had their first kid at uh, 26. Uh, 24, 25, 26, uh, Gen X had their first kid at 28, 29 years old. Millennials were not having their first kid until 32, 34 on average. So what it meant was, um, you know, the statisticians were looking at uh, millennials and saying, it doesn't make sense that they haven't moved out of cities yet. Um, and it was, it was really because they were taking longer uh, within their life patterns um, to uh, establish families and maybe to have greater reason uh, to move out of those urban environments that we all know that they've come to love uh, in their younger years. I also think many of our cities have become completely unsustainable um, from a transportation perspective uh, and from a, a cost of living perspective and that needed to be addressed and I think that um, thankfully a lot of the telework that's been forced by COVID is going to be a, a great 
uh, safety net or sort of stretch mechanism um, to make uh, these physical environments more um, viable. You, you might now um, live much more happily in a metro area with a one or two hour commute uh, if you're only having to do that commute one or two days a week. Mm -hmm. So I think it will both um, extend the edges of the suburbs in more sustainable ways. Um, and I also think that there will be um, cities across the country uh, in this sort of tertiary, uh, formerly known as tertiary cities that have a lot of the features and benefits uh, of, our, of our classic urban environments, um, but with much lower costs of living. Um, and those are now much more viable, both for individual employees, or maybe even for co-working sites uh, or outposts of uh, our favorite companies. Well, you know, it's funny, uh, we, um, we're both very linked to the world of flexible workplace, co-working business centers, et cetera. And one of the current uh, location, location, location mantras that we're hearing and uh, we agree with and, and have heard for the last couple of years, and it relates to uh, everything we're seeing today and, and it relates especially to your uh, cost of living uh, uh, issue in, in uh, the city centers, uh, mm -hmm. um, it's, that it's better to build on a bike path than a metro path. Uh, uh, that the future of work that we're going to be addressing is going to become much more localized and less commuter driven on long distance commuting. And mm -hmm. if you if you say, well, they're still commuting, you work stretching things out a little bit, they're still commuting. Yeah, but one day a week. Right. Okay, so, so the difference in the commute experience, if everybody com stopped commuting one day a week, just that, the commuter experience of having 20% less ridership, less congestion, less crowd, hustle, bustle, everything makes the whole whole thing much more pleasant. Mm -hmm. and everybody's only commuting two days a week or three days a week. Well, right. now it's actually, you, you're not rubbing shoulders with people while you're sitting on the train and, and you don't feel as pressured and, and all these things. So. It, there, a lot of things will come about as a result of all of this that, it, that can still sustain the structure and yet make it much more pleasant uh, for a work-life balance. I think that's true unless you get companies that say you have to be here on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday um, and not Monday and Friday and that we make that three-day experience from a density perspective uh, as problematic as it was uh, pre-COVID. So I think that that works if um, employers uh, really offer uh, flexibility or dynamic scheduling, um, something that can be easily accomplished with technology. It doesn't have to be chaotic to be dynamic, uh, but we need some smarter thinking and some more uh, creative uh, sort of intellectual investment there uh, to avoid going back to kind of a, a shorter version of the of the previous. Yeah, I, I, I think, um, I think, and none of us know for sure, but uh, that companies will be driven by uh, their uh, people that they hire in the future. We're, instead of having a top-down driver from a human resources department, I think we're going to see much more of a bottom-up driver through mm -hmm. the human resources yep. into policy making, such as, as you're considering there. At least I hope that's the way it is, and, and we won't know for sure. And there'll always be outriders and, and anomalies, but I, I hope that that becomes the major trend. 
Yeah, and I would say that's a big piece of Plastark's work because a lot of organizations want to engage employees, want to do things with an employee-centric perspective, but maybe don't know how, uh, or maybe they collect that data and information, they don't know what to do about it. So kind of both getting that data and then turning it into um, policies and design solutions is really uh, front and center of what we do. Yeah, we, we, we are very data-centric ourselves, and one of our internal mantras is get the data, Data becomes information, which you can turn into knowledge, which creates action. Mm -hmm. So unless you have the data and go through all those steps, it's it's very hard. But if you do those, go through those steps, then uh, you you can really find solutions much more easily. And a company like Plastark helps at each one of those phases. Certainly. Um, if if you're going to leave everybody, we're we're running out of time here. If you're going to leave everybody with one amazing single thought. That, that, that says, you know what, the most important thing in the future of work that Plastark believes is going to be a driver or provide a return to everybody, what would it be? So I think that what we've learned in this unique moment in time is around experimentation, testing. Every organization, every individual jumped into a new way of working that they maybe hadn't imagined uh, was possible before or hadn't considered. Um, and so through experimentation, we now have different modes of working, uh, again, either as individuals or companies that we didn't know possible before and we have really come to embrace. And so um, whether it's increasing wellness, improving diversity, having more multi-sensory environments, this conversation about urban or suburban, uh, I think that what we've all learned uh, is let's try it and see, uh, and maybe try it, test it, uh, have some research and results, um, and keep doing things differently uh, rather than get, getting stuck in a track uh, of maybe something that is just okay work exp experience rather than an amazing work experience or that fall in love with work experience. Well, if I could summarize that, I would just say, have the courage to embrace change. Absolutely, well you know, done. That, that, re that really is what uh, is important right now is to, to having the courage to embrace change and, and to enjoy it, uh, not to be afraid of it, but to actually embrace it with joy and look for new ways that uh, are going to drive the future of work. Uh, uh, Melissa, how can people reach you if they want to know more about Plastark and, 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 and want to be able to interface with you directly? Absolutely. So I'm Melissa at Plastark.com. You can follow us on Twitter. Uh, our handle there is Plastark. And uh, that's P-L-A-S-T-A-R-C. And we'd love to see you in any format. We also have a monthly webinar and a monthly newsletter. So come to our site and sign up for those. Great. Well, thank you very much, Melissa. We really appreciated your time today and uh, the contributions you're able to make towards the, uh, the overall, the total topic of the future of work. Thank you. Thank you, Frank. Really appreciate it. If it's impacting the future of work, it's in the Future of Work podcast by allwork.space. Are you ready?